everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is my co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today we have an amazing show for you. We're going to talk about some brand new routers. We're going to talk about the wire cutter ranking for the best switch for the smart home. Woo-woo. Some medical miracles, thanks to the Internet of Things, and trouble at smart things. And our guest today is Matt Manley of Fjord, who's going to be talking to us about wearables and specifically designing smart jewelry, which... You like, which you like, I was going to say. I was going to say, yeah, I'm a big proponent of. Do you still wear that, by the way? I, I do still wear the Ringley. And the Ringley, that's what it is, yes. You know what? I meant to mention this like two weeks ago in the show, hmm. but they now have a bracelet called the Aries bracelet that is very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a thin gold band with a jewel in it. And the jewel is just like the Ringley jewel. So it's got the Bluetooth in it. It's got the LEDs and it connects to your smartphone and sends you notifications via the very attractive bracelet on your wrist. Hmm. And I was really excited about it. I believe you can order it for $195 during the pre-order period. And yes, early supporters get 20% off. When you said the price, $195, I cringed a little bit. But, 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 this technically is jewelry. It's not just a notification light. This is designed to be jewelry. Yes. And it's, it's something that I tend to wear. So the actual, and I should tell you, the list price is actually $279. Mm-hmm. So if you're really thinking about this, you should buy it now. Um, with the Ringley, I don't wear it every day, but I do wear it when I want to look nice. Hmm. And the nice thing about the Aries bracelet that I should probably have mentioned is that it also acts as a fitness tracker. Um, oh, that makes a big difference. So yes, sorry, my bad. That's it okay. acts as a step tracker, plus provides all these notifications. And I hmm. believe in October... So later on this year, you're going to actually be able to make payments with it because they have this tie-up with MasterCard. Oh, So this is like a feature-packed device for people like me who don't like to carry their smartphone maybe in their pockets or around with them all the time. Or who don't want to wear something that looks like technology. Right. This is pretty. Hmm. Um, it's, it's very attractive. I would wear it in a heartbeat. What notifications are you getting right now on your Ringly that you probably would get also with this? Just like, do you use it for emails or certain? So because the Ringly is so much more personal, I use it more for, so anytime I get a text, a phone call, and I also use it for Uber notifications. So if, especially because if I'm waiting around, like, and it's dark and weird outside, I don't want to be like distracted by my smartphone. Mm -hmm. I want to look alert. So when the Uber arrives, my my ring vibrates. And I, and I tend to get Ubers like leaving very loud places like a bar or a place like that. And you can't hear the phone buzzing like your ride's here, your ride's here. You know, it's, you could actually see that. That's not that's nice. Well, you, you actually technically you feel it. It's haptic feedback. It vibrates hey. a certain number of times. And you could also see it because it glows. I think my Uber is set to turn the LED purple. But you program it yourself. So you can do Facebook notifications, you can do Twitter, you can do email. It's not like a a massive amount or a stream of notifications. You're selecting which specific ones you want. Is it limited to certain numbers? Can you only do three different types of notifications, for example? So you have five different LED colors and you have four different levels of haptic feedback. It's like one vibration, two vibrations, up to four. So... So so you can you can make as many as you want. I think after a while you might be kind of like, wait, was that Hangouts? Was that Calendar? What what just happened? The other final thing I'll say about this is they have a setting called your inner circle, or maybe it's the inner ring. That probably makes more sense. Mm -hmm. That you can actually turn off notifications except for certain people from your contacts list. 
So then if you're like in a super important meeting, only distraction you're going to get from that thing is like if your husband calls or if your daughter's school calls would be my examples. Mm -hmm. I love it. I, I think it's really applicable. I don't wear it every day. It is expensive. It's probably one of those. It's it's an add on. I like the way it looks like actual jewelry. And I do think the future of wearables is probably really cheap electronics stuck into everything you own. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And we'll talk about that, actually, with the guests. We talk about kind of different mm -hmm. models for building that sort of thing. So, and, you know, you could do it in cufflinks, too. So, guys, stay tuned. Okay. After that digression, it was a good <laughs> and fruitful digression. So it was, yay. it was. Um, let's talk about routers. Woo-woo. Routers. We have to talk about routers for two reasons. One is because I'm sending back one that you loaned to me, that you used in the past. But more importantly, because another router company just got some big old funding dollars uh, from Amazon. Uh, we're talking about the Luma, which is, uh, are they hexagonal? How many sides are they? I don't know. Six They're not circles. Six sides. Hexagons. So hexagons and your choice of colors, white, gray, beigey, brown, and orange. Um, the burnt, Luma's burnt orange for UT colors. Ooh. In Austin, that's what we would go for. Ah, makes sense. Makes sense. These were announced previously. They're still available for pre-order. They're very similar to the Eero devices, which we've talked about before. We'll talk about them a little bit more in a few minutes. They're a lot less expensive, at least at the pre-order level. And I know we talked about the prices before, but just real quick, they're $149 for a single device, $299 for a three-pack. As the, these are the pre-order prices because they're not quite available yet. You can go on Amazon, get them, uh, get on the list and pay for them, I guess. But the Eros are $199 and $499 for a single and three pack. So big price difference, at least initially. But how much did they, they take in? I think it was, um, 60,000. Oh, 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 you were talking about order. I was thinking, how much did they raise? I'm like, they raised more. Oh, than that. oh, sorry. They raised $12.5 million. <laughs> $12.5 million. Yes. Million dollars. Um, million with uh, a bunch of backers, including. Including though Amazon, which Amazon they've got Excel and Amazon as their mm -hmm. lead investors. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and they've got actually the former AT and T CEO Dave Dorman is also a backer actually. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, look at all these people. Um, and its founder Paul Judge, one of the founders, is a big security guy. He actually founded Pindrop Security, and you know he's the firm is based in, I believe, Atlanta. And the idea with Luma is that it improves your coverage using a mesh network, much like Eero does. But the big selling point is going to be parental controls. Yes. They have a really nice UI for like, I, I think it actually is done like R, P, G, and G. So you can kind of define the levels of access your kids can have. Mm -hmm. And unlike with the Eero's, today hopefully that will change they actually have kind of they they have much more granular permissions like you can turn off devices after certain times and that sort of thing mm -hmm. and in addition to the financing that they uh, just announced they also announced two major hires matt duffy who was with sonos and apple at one time uh, he's the head of supply chain now for luma and they have a new vp of engineering who comes from airwatch and vmware in his past so that's the security side yeah. AirWatch, I think, is an EMM, uh, Enterprise Mobility Management System, uh, Company. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah, but uh, but you got VMware as well. Exactly. So um, so you're right, 60,000. I didn't realize that. I'm looking at the numbers right now. 30,000 through customer pre-orders and another 30,000 through retail channels. So it plans to begin shipping in June. So if you wait until June, you're probably going to pay a lot more because the pricing 
will go up to what looks like 199 and 499 for the one device or three devices, which is exactly the same as the Eero. So if you want to get in to the Lumas early, now's the time to do it and save yourself a bunch of money. So I got to ask you, what did you think? Of, of the speaking, Euro. Yeah, I was like, speaking of mesh Wi-Fi routers, which is actually what we were speaking uh, of, yes. what did you so, think about the Euros? So this weekend I ripped out the Euros because you loaned them to me, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. I replaced the Google OnHub with the Euros. And guess what? What? I got a fever and the only prescription is more mesh networking. <laughs> oh man, it was great. It was great. I mean, I have my OnHub back now and I already do miss coverage and speeds in some areas of my house that I had with the three pack of Eros that you got for me to borrow and review. And I almost don't want to send them back, but I have to. I was going to um, say, maybe you should buy those, buy those Lumas now. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if I, cause if I went and bought the Eros now, it's four ninety nine for what I, you know, I, I reviewed and like, yeah, they were fantastic. They were fantastic. So I'm thinking actually now about pre-ordering the Lumas because I can get hopefully the same experience at a much lower price, but we will see. They were fantastic. I couldn't say enough. I, I did see some people complaining about them, um, either reviewers or people who bought them. You know, they're like, I don't see a difference. I don't, you know, it's so tricky with networking because there's so many variables. Every configuration is different. Every house or business is different architecturally. Materials are different. I don't know. In my house, all I can tell you is they worked great. I will second that. I did notice, though, and they fixed it, hmm. but I did notice that when my internet access went offline, it took them a little extra longer to come back up. Hmm. And because sometimes during the day, my internet get would get kind of spotty. Mm-hmm. It's fixed now. But when that was happening, I would be offline and it would take them another five or 10 minutes to all boot back up again. That was a pain. Yeah, that's certainly frustrating. I I did not have any. Um, I have FiOS here at the house, uh, 150 megabits up and down, and never had any outages while I was testing these. So I can't I can't speak to it. I don't know. You're a very lucky man. Oh yeah. So let's talk about the best switch out on the market today, because the wire cutter actually put out a guide to the best smart home outlets. When they, what they call everybody calls it a switch, but you and I right. would know it as a outlet. Right. Yeah. These aren't technically switches. They are their outlets, but. But that's the terminology. So but, yeah, we'll no, no, that's okay. That's okay. No. Um, uh, yet they reviewed, I don't know, seven or eight. I mean, for people who are not familiar with the wire cutter, that's what they do. They, they pick a device type and they go and get all the different competitors. And then they spend hours and hours and hours testing and tell you what they think is the best in its class. So I'm going to hmm? agree with their their pick actually i um, do too actually because <laughs> oh, well, i have one this isn't controversial i will well, say that they they left some things off but let's talk about what they picked yeah they picked the belkin wemo insight switch we've talked about it before you sent me one i think maybe for my birthday i don't recall maybe it was christmas because i like you kevin thank you thank you. Do, you do you still have one or multiples of these or no yeah i actually bought one a couple months ago because it was on sale for like i think it was like 40 bucks on amazon and mm-hmm. it, it actually goes on sale kind of regularly. It does. It um, does. So keep an eye out. But it, you know, we I, I used it actually to find out how much energy our fish tank consumed because I oh. felt like it was consuming a lot of energy. Um, <laughs> and now I realized that I can actually plug it into the fish tank light and only the fish tank light. And now mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to turn off when I tell my Echo to turn off downstairs at night. It's mm-hmm. going to also control the fish light. So ah, that yes. will be nice. 
this does integrate with Echo, obviously, and uh, with If This Then That. It's great because it's cross-platform, so whether you use iOS or Android, you can use the app. The app will, as Stacy just said, show you the amount of electricity consumed by anything plugged into the Switch. It's it's a Wi-Fi switch, yeah, just so so folks know that you don't need a you don't need a hub or anything. It it works directly with an app, but it does have those integrations. If there was a downside, I would say to me, it's just a single outlet. You know, it would be nice if I had I could connect two things to this, but it's just a single three prong outlet. It is, although it's much smaller than the original Wemo, so mm. it doesn't take up your entire outlet anymore. It's also very sensitive. The switch on top, so mm-hmm. I found myself. Oh, this is something to note because I plugged it into a fish tank. When Wemo did its firmware updates, it would actually turn the fish tank off. And one day that happened and none of us noticed. And we went to bed and um, the, the thermometer, this is not a horror story, the heater, that went off too. And so Frozen actually, fish. Yes, we came to <laughs> very sluggish fish the next morning. So you may not want to plug it into something that you know other people or fish depend yeah. on. No, that would not be good. Some of the other ones they tested, should we just at least mention those? Yeah, yeah, let's mention them. iDevices, which is your smart home that's HomeKit certified. That was their runner-up, by the way. That was. Yep. And it's $40 on Amazon, so it's a little cheaper. And if you're a HomeKit family, go for it, because it also has a nightlight that has a little LED strip that changes colors. Woo! Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the other ones, well, the competition that they tested, but they didn't add to their best pick or runner-up was the ConnectSense Smart Outlet. I've not heard of that one. They say it's the most expensive switch they tested, so I don't know how much it, it costs. So ConnectSense is a Internet of Things division of a larger company. I've actually interviewed Adam Justice, their smart home guy, related to some Apple stuff on the show before. People who care about Wi-Fi should know about them because they make a lot of Wi-Fi connected sensors, like water... Uh, water sensors and some other things. Mm-hmm. And it's nice because they're Wi-Fi. They're not like Zigbee or Z-Wave, so you don't need a hub. The con to them is they are super expensive. Mm. But, you know, if you want to go all Wi-Fi, these are the guys you should look up. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm looking. These are $80 for the Switch on Amazon right now. Yeah. But it's a, it's a two-outlet Switch, I will say that. And it does have Home Connect uh, uh, certification, so... Mm-hmm. Um, so who else did they look at? The iHome ISP5. They say it was the only HomeKit compatible device they tested that has an Android app. So obviously you can't use the HomeKit bit, but at least you know if you have an Android device. But if you do have Android, you can still use this, which is nice. So that's good. But they had problems with it and HomeKit. So that's, that's why it didn't didn't make the cut. That's the story of everyone's yeah. life. Yeah, D-Link. We all know that they have a DSP W215. That just rolls off the tongue. And they have a GE Bluetooth. Oh, this is a Bluetooth plug-in smart yeah. switch. Which is, so they're using Avion, which is mm-hmm. a backend for actually some of, I believe it's GE's light switches too, Bluetooth-powered light switches. Hmm. And it's a Bluetooth mesh, but I haven't been thrilled with the performance of any of the Bluetooth mesh devices that I've tried so far. So it becomes a challenge if you, A, don't have enough of them in your home, Mm-hmm. to create an actual mesh, and B, if you get too far away from it, from your phone, you can't actually control it. So depending on the size of your house or what you want to control, it becomes kind of like, oh, the suck. Mm, not good. So. Not good. And then rounding out the list was the Edimax SP2101W. 
man, who comes up with these names? Uh, uh, engineers. I suppose, <laughs> yes. They said that they knocked it down to the bottom of the list because it was the only one they tested that doesn't offer any sort of smart home integration. Hmm. Okay. What I don't see, though, is like their Aeon Tech makes some switches um, mm-hmm. that actually tie into the Smart Things platform. So they didn't try any of those. And maybe it's because they only work with Smart Things, although they're Zigbee switches. So I'm like, nah, not really. Lowe's actually has some smart switches that are, oh, I probably know why, because they're not Wi Fi or Bluetooth. These were all hub based switches. So they're all Ah, uh, makes sense. Yep. But Zuli. And I don't know if you remember, but I'm super keen on Zuli, and they are the smart outlets that have the presence monitoring in them. And it's which I like. Yeah, I thought they were fun. They've actually, since we last talked about them, integrated with Philips Hue. So now, like your Hue bulbs can come on when you enter the room, mm-hmm. which is kind of nice. It's not just anything plugged into the outlet. So that feels like something they should probably add to the list because it's a very yeah. different feature set, but really cool. I'm betting you could reach out to them and make that happen. I think I probably could. Yeah. So, okay. And that's kind of the the smart switch you should buy if you're into it. Moving right along, we've got news from, I don't know, the medical world. So this is kind of a wacky story. It sounds, I think, cooler than it really was. But basically, the story is a man went into a seizure and doctors actually used his Fitbit to see if they were able to give him some medicine to help bring down his heart rate. So you're like, wow. And all the headlines are like, this guy's fitness tracker may have just saved his life. That's from Gizmodo. That may be overstating it a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, a little. But But it's still interesting. So what happened is he came in after having a seizure and they noticed that he had atrial fibrillation. um, So a super fast heartbeat that is irregular. And they have medicine they can give you to treat that if it's not a chronic issue. So what they did is they, with this guy's permission, because he was up and conscious, they looked at his Fitbit data to see if his heartbeat was always that wacky. Mm -hmm. And when they found out that it it wasn't, and it was the because of the onset of the seizure, that his heartbeat got all crazy, they were like, oh, we can totally give you this medicine. So they did. And that is that is the story. Actually, I think I'm looking at the story now and I'd heard, I'd seen the headlines. I'm just going to quote it. The doctors decided to reset his heart rate with an electrical cardio version. So they gave him a zap or something, no? Oh, you're right. Yeah. Oh, I was reading about the dilat, dilatism. This is is why we don't talk medicine too much. (laughs) I was like, I was reading how they gave him the drug, but that was in. uh, I'm sure I don't need to specify that, but just in in the ambulance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, we, we so no, I mean, n- they're taking not just what the device is showing at, at the time they're looking at the guy, but as you said, they're looking at his the data that it had collected. And that gave them the, the smarts and the data to decide what to do next. And boom. They possibly or, saved or his zap. life. Zap. Yeah. So it brings up some interesting questions. The first of which for me is these <laughs> things are notoriously inaccurate. So... <laughs> I don't well, know how I feel about that. You can learn a lot from the trends. So let's let's say in certain situations, you don't need 100% accuracy. And when we say these things aren't accurate, a lot of them have some glitches here and there, or they're like 95% as accurate as, as a better actual heart rate monitor. That's good enough to get trends. And, and I think give them, like in this case, give the doctors the information they need to make a smart decision. There we go. So 
Also, speaking of medicine, because I thought this was really cool last week, was Pfizer, you may have heard of them, they make lots mm-hmm. of drugs, uh, teamed up with IBM um, to basically build a Parkinson's monitoring, I'm going to call it a service, because A, it's not out yet, It's this is in the theoretical, we're talking about it stage, and it, it's not one thing. So basically what they want to do is they want a way to monitor Parkinson's patients 24-7, various different aspects of, you know, how a patient's feeling, so they can start creating personalized treatment regimens for them, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's really hard. So I reached out to Pfizer to ask them a little bit more about this, because they, they want to build a clinical model by 2018 and start testing it, and then have something they could prescribe to patients by 2020. So I was like, wow, that's a big order. So they said what they're looking for is off-the-shelf sensors. So this could be anybody. And they, they're looking for things that measure motion, acceleration, position, interactions of a person with objects in their environment, muscle activity, brain activity, breathing patterns, and language production and organization. So some of those things actually can be done today with a smartphone. There are actually apps that can detect Parkinson's or say, hey... <laughs> Mm-hmm. You have symptoms. Um, they are not, you know, you would then go to the doctor. So they're also looking for things that typically elderly and people who are struggling with motor disabilities can use, which I was like, oh, that is a tall order because a lot of the current tech is really complicated to kind of implement. So mm. Pfizer is trying to work with IBM to basically pull in all this off the shelf stuff and create a really easy to use system. And I'm not sure if they could do it in three years, two years. It's a, I think it's a big ask uh, in, in three years, but I'm sorry, two years. It's an even bigger ask now. <laughs> uh, but, but what's interesting to me, whether they do it or not, is that they're putting out an opportunity here because they've got this vision and they're specifying here's what we're going to be looking for from sensors and so on. And we're going to work with IBM to sift through the data and make these monitoring systems. I mean, you might see a couple of businesses pop up as a result of these kind of announcements. And that's very interesting to me. That is awesome. I also Mm -hmm. think it speaks to the fact that hardware is going to be kind of a commodity here. And -hmm. what Pfizer is actually going to be looking for is to create the data and analytics around how to measure Parkinson's. And that's going to be super. That's the hard part. Well, yes. And if you think about how then you might prescribe treatment to someone, you're no longer just getting like a handful of drugs. You're going to be prescribed like a, a monitoring system. Before Perhaps. you may get your drugs. And yeah. like, there's things like Holter monitors, which measure your heartbeat like all the time. You mm-hmm. get those if they're trying to figure out, like, in my case, why you keep fainting. Uh, <laughs> so people like doctors already prescribe medical devices, but they are horrible, clunky, terrible mm-hmm. things. And so it'll be really interesting to see how this goes. I yeah. think very exciting, very exciting. I can't wait to hear more. Hopefully we will. And speaking of smarts <laughs> and. We're not so smart, depending on the situation. Exactly. I was going to say, smart (laughs) things, as in the the connected home hub and platform that was purchased by Samsung for the last almost month. Yeah. Smart things users have been experiencing some trouble, and I'm really sorry about that, you guys. What did you do, Stacey? I did not mess their... What did you do? I did not go in and and mess (laughs) with their databases, but apparently they had database troubles about three and a half weeks ago, and they are still... Still having trouble. It's caused a lot of the rules to stop working for people. Um, there's a message board that has a lot of comments. Yes, there are 1,207 replies currently with an estimated read time of 184 minutes. So we're going to save you three hours and tell you what's what's what. <laughs> a lot of upset people. 
lot of upset people talking about how, you know, they need to fix the underlying infrastructure. Smart Things is, as they've said on the thread, aware of the situation. They tell me that they are working on a fix. They don't have a time frame for that fix that they're willing to share with me. So I can't tell you anything more than if you have smart things and if you notice your rules not working or things going, some people have reported their alarms going off in Haywire. Mm. You know, if that's happening to you, you're not alone. And a fix is supposedly coming. It's interesting to me because just last week we did talk about Revolve and the backend services getting shut down. So basically anybody who owns the Revolve they have nothing, you know, come May, was it 15th or 16th? Mm-hmm. And I know I had mentioned, as I have in the past, maybe, you know, a local-based system instead of a server-side system, cloud-based is the way to go. And sure enough, I mean, you can almost say the same thing again here because what Samsung is saying is the issue, the degradation of the system is because of a high load on the database and messaging infrastructure. So, you know, you're relying on the backend services. And it's interesting that it's a high load on the infrastructure because they know how many products they're selling. Therefore, they know how many people they are supporting with this and what the infrastructure needs to be able to do. But it's not doing it, at least not right now. And I'm trying to remember, I don't know who hosts smart things. So that's another good question. That's that's hmm. the question I'd be asking. A lot of companies are using Amazon. Yeah, but if they're using a, we'll say, a well-known, high-profile cloud service for everything, which is, I presume that they are, all of those are highly scalable. Right. It's, well, that's it's, what makes me think they might not be. That's a good question. Yeah. So we, we don't know. We can only speculate. And we will not do that maybe, for much Maybe longer. we'll dig around and find out for next week. There we go. Well, maybe it will be fixed by next week. That would be the best solution ever, yes. So we'll we'll see. So just so you know, oh, oh. Oh, what? I think they might be hosted right now on Samsung Sammy Cloud for the internet thing. <laughs> Sammy Cloud. Yes, I'm looking at a blog post from May of 2015. They debuted SmartThings Open Cloud, a software and data aggregation service powered by Sammy, which is Samsung's cloud for IoT. Mm-hmm. So, I'm biting my tongue. I'm maybe. biting my tongue. Yeah. So maybe that's what's happening. Because Sammy is actually still in beta. It's supposed to launch later this year for the rest of the world. Okay. Um, that, then I'm, gonna, I'm not going to bite my tongue and I'm going to say this. If if they, are, if they, being Samsung, Smart Home of SmartThings, are hosting this on a beta cloud service that they have, why would you run a production service on a beta cloud service? That is a big no-no to me. Yeah, we'll have to ask some questions about this because mm. <laughs> this blog post is not making me feel like great. Not, it's not giving you a warm Sammy? <laughs> it's not giving me a warm Sammy. All right. <laughs> All right, so that's it. Stay tuned for our guest, Matt Manley of Fjord, who's going to be talking about smart jewelry. And hopefully come back next week and we'll know a little bit more about what's happening at Smart Things. Hi, this is Stacy breaking into the IoT podcast to tell you two things. The first is that I've launched a weekly newsletter devoted to the Internet of Things that you can sign up for at stacyoniot.com. The second is that we're now accepting ads on the IoT podcast. We have packages for big companies and for startups. So if you're interested, email andrew at iotpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Matt Manley, who's a group design director at Fjord Chicago. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Great, great, Stacey. Thanks for having me in. 
Oh, I'm so glad because I am a sucker for wearables and smart jewelry, which is the topic for today. So I'm very curious because you and I had this conversation before the show about your thoughts and where this is going to go. And so let's talk about the future of smart jewelry. Are we going to have lots of it? None of it? What do you think? Well, that's kind of interesting. I think the uh, the way I would look at it is we probably will have lots of it, but we won't know it. I think that's kind of the underlying kind of premise of all of the, the notions of smart jewelry is this idea of kind of ambient intelligence. So at some point, I think maybe the way that we'll kind of arise is you'll get used to just assuming that any particular kind of trinket or piece of uh, jewelry that somebody may be wearing might actually kind of harbor that little kind of inside intelligence or other kind of smartness to it. So what do we need to get there? Because right now, I love smart jewelry because I hate looking at my phone and my phone is often in my bag. So I need something on my person that's like, hey, this is ringing. This is happening. But right now it's it's really hideous. I mean, I've seen necklaces that look like little Kindles on, on ropes and it's... <laughs> I'm not wearing that. Yeah, totally. And and I think we've we've kind of hit that point where people say, you know, and one of the things that we we kind of joke about, you know, in the studio is really when you think about the first piece of smart jewelry or kind of connected tech, I mean, it was the house arrest bracelet. You know, <laughs> it's the thing that people kind of wear on their ankle, and it just kind of announces, hey, this is a smart piece of jewelry, so to speak. And we've kind of moved through that little segment as well, where you look at these big kind of clunky, you know, screens that are sitting on somebody's wrist and it absolutely announces, hey, this is basically a slave to my phone that's strapped to my body. But I think we're quickly moving out of that. You start looking around at all the form factors that, that people are kind of putting out on the market today. And and I love looking at uh, the overall kind of Kickstarter universe and just thinking, keeping in like real-time ideas of how people are checking these forms. And we're moving away from screens. It's this idea of Let's just kind of uh, create an object that is really good at signifying change or some kind of change in status. And how elegantly can we just acknowledge that that happens? And it's increasingly not becoming a screen-dependent thing. Okay. So I am with you on that. I have, I'll have i compare my two devices that I wear most often. Mm. One mm-hmm. is an old-school Pebble, which has a screen. And the mm-hmm. other is a Ringley, which mm-hmm. does not. And Ringley is a beautiful piece of jewelry to me. Or I, I'm kind of curious because it seems like there's an issue of like the information we want at any one time from these devices and maybe something about how we're handling notifications. Like maybe we need to accommodate ourselves to fewer notifications or only the most important ones. Yeah, the only the most important, I think, is what you're is what you're really kind of getting at. And and again, something that we see everybody I guess maybe I'm maybe just kind of like a social level deciding what you know is kind of the right level engagement for them. This really gives the initial kind of idea of what we would call calm technology, which was a, a phrase coined by Mark Weisner uh, back at Xerox Park over 20 years ago now at this point. And the whole basic notion of calm technology is you know some kind of change in status or, or kind of change in the ambient kind of world around us has happened you may not need to know exactly what that change is at that moment, or depending on how you set up your notifications, you may know exactly the type of change that's happened. But all you need to know at that one moment is a change. When you talk about, you know, a few minutes ago, you know, sometimes you want to read a text, 
Sometimes you want to get a little long form with it and kind of know exactly the details. That's a completely different mode of thinking. You know, maybe you're not in a meeting. Maybe hopefully, you know, you're not driving. You're not doing any of those kinds of things. You're, you're at a moment of rest. You can kind of get into that. And that's, that frankly is probably a different device type. Uh, that's something that gets away from the notion of where I think overall smart jewelry is going to. So if we, if we accept that jewelry is going to be a place for calm technology, how many variations of notifications do you think we can cram into one of these things that people uh, can, I mean, cause there are things I want to know very specifically. So like yeah. my Ringley is like, is my daughter's school calling that gets a mm-hmm, notification. Totally. And that's different from the haptic feedback I get for if an Uber has arrived, which is another great place for. Totally. And that's, I mean, that's kind of a great question when you think about, you know, how many and, and what's the changing texture here that we have. Frankly, that's a rolling question. That is something that we always have to just kind of watch and, and it gets, and no pun intended there, but it gets into, you know, basically personal appetite. I mean, for some people, the notion of saying, oh, okay, one buzz on my wrist means an Uber is here and two buzzes means this and, oh, my, my ring lit up this color, things like that. That's actually a complexity for some people. So I, I don't know if there's ever going to be one kind of canonical, you know, this is it. But I think the, uh, the, the space to play in is giving people kind of the freedom and say, look, we've got all of these different devices. We have all of these different applications that, that offer certain services. Uh, within Fjord, the way we look at it is this notion of everything that we do is a living service. So give people the opportunity to kind of make their own orchestration. Well, what about the particular devices? Because that's another way you, hmm. I, I could have my ring be my, my nuclear totally. signal. Child is totally. ill. But I might also totally. have... Mm-hmm you know, a watch that gives me something else, or I'm thinking there's a bracelet, I think it's called the June bracelet that tracks your UV exposure. Um, And that's actually, I think it does it with color. But are we going to be stuck with not one device that's giving us everything like a smartphone, and we're just gonna have them dispersed throughout our body? Uh, I think, again, if people wanted to do it that way, and wanted to articulate it, they absolutely could do it that way. And that's something as you, you pointed out now, that's two devices right there that are on the market. Um, there's many others where you could kind of divide and conquer, if you will, types of information for a type of device type that, that might be kind of a mental bookmark for people to kind of know, oh, if this happens, it's this classification of information. I think that's entirely possible. I think one other thing that you can see, though, again, is bringing it down to one device could basically use things like light, haptic feedback, might have a screen. Color changing with the light is a, is a very interesting thing that we're kind of looking at too. But it just really kind of gets into, again, personal articulation. How complex do you want it to be? Um, some of these devices, once you get past kind of light and vibration, kind of these general color changes, you can do a lot with just those two simple things. So I, I don't know if we need necessarily more and more complex devices. I think it comes down to again, personal choice of like what seems most important to the individual. I think I could actually use one of these for like dessert or eating too many calories. I could use like a little electric zapper. (laughs) (laughs) We we joke about that too all the time, just like the kind of the negative feedback in these kind of devices. And it's, yeah, and it's funny when we do our user research all the time, you see, you see people kind of fall naturally into one of two camps. Well, you know, there's camp A, all about it. Can't wait to have it. Can't wait to think about the power that they could kind of harness for this to make their day that much more fluid. And then there's the other camp that automatically goes into kind of dog leash territory. Say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm kind of a slave to these things. And so we kind of jokingly you know, get into geofencing and things like that, saying, okay, 
if in your case with dessert, maybe we kind of geofence and say, if you walk this way towards this restaurant where you always go for the carrot cake or whatever, zap. You know, we just kind of you know, gently remind you, you're, you're flying too close to the sun here. You're kind of going a little bit you know, too far over there. But Rest assured that if I break my dessert diet, I am not going for carrot cake. <laughs> <laughs> to get these things as ubiquitous as I feel like you're, you're saying they might become, I feel like they have to be a lot cheaper. Are, are we going to sure. get there? I don't see a reason why it wouldn't follow the, the basic premises that Moore's Law puts out. It's you know, increased power, cheaper price. As you see the proliferation of these things happen, and, and frankly, as the market kind of finds new ways to use this intelligence or new situations that could be benefited from this intelligence, um, I don't see why that wouldn't be a driver to help cheapen the overall cost of, of imbuing these into devices. Now, what other things? So when I'm using these devices, and as they become more ubiquitous, there's a challenge associated with programming them. So I, th- I feel like designers could go one of two ways. They could make it basically a soft programmable kind of device. So my Ringly in many ways is that because I've got so many options with the app and I'm like, I assign you this, I assign you that. Or they could just go with a one function device that is set. So like the UV monitor or maybe a health bracelet that I've been, I've, I've been actually looking for a wearable that has an accelerometer on it and just tells people when I fall down. That's all I wanted to do sure. because I faint a lot. And I wanted to say, oh my God, Stacy has just fallen suddenly. Right. Call for him. It's the new fallen, I can't get up kind of mantra. Exactly. Sure. But you have to press that button. I can't do that when right. I faint. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I guess the question there is, how do we think about, do I develop a soft programmable button or do I develop a dedicated function? Is there really any bifurcation there? I don't know. Sure. So I think, again, I tend to kind of go more towards a programmable, just because if I, if I look at this from a marketability standpoint, um, and there's a, couple, there's a couple ways to cut this, frankly, but if I look at it from a programmatic standpoint, and again, we were talking before, before about if this, then that, and the kind of the nature of being able to kind of give a lot of people very easy ways to string together events to be able to program it. I do think that having that kind of agnostic kind of language to, again, chain things together in an easy way, to my mind anyway, would only increase the ability for a device to be accepted because it's, hey, this is something that I can, with little to no programming knowledge, but from a pretty easy to grasp mental model, um, can put these things together to make this device work for me. I got to think that that's a positive. On the flip side, though, another way to cut it, not to, not to kind of contra- contradict that, um, the thing that you kind of bring up is it's kind of like the Google search bar kind of idea of like, let's just uh, do one thing or do one thing well. What we talk about in the studios, this is kind of the Polaroid camera or the gumball machine effect. It only does one thing. I put a nickel in it, I get a gumball. I push the button, I get a picture. Great. Simplicity. The thing about that, though, is when it's a single-minded object, those markets are very, very narrow. Um, so depending on how good, quote unquote, the idea is kind of depends and kind of dictates on the marketability of the object. So I tend to lean more towards programmatic so people have choice and can kind of make the device shape shift um, a little bit more for that person's particular needs. Okay. Well, and those devices would probably be more expensive because they'd have more sensors or more outputs, whereas a single function device might be, I mean, I, I assume one day we'll get to the point where we have like a UV bracelet that's it's just everywhere and maybe it's really cheap. Yeah. So totally, totally fair. Cake. And I think, 
Sure. <laughs> sure. So I think it's totally fair, especially in the near term. And I think, again, that, that follows the same general kind of premise is, you know, right now that multi-sensor device may be more expensive. 36 months from now, five years from now, I don't know if that would even be a part of the conversation. Gosh, I hope not. Because I, my, my theory is that wearable technology will be pretty much ubiquitous and hopefully in as many things as possible, much like yourself. And the big questions I have about it are, how are we going to program them? And I also have questions about the environmental aspects of that, but, Mm -hmm. you know, and how do we assign functions to them? Cause I can think of, well, I can think of so many things. I mean, like the, the golf glove is a great example. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have thought payments with a glove, but it makes a lot of sense. If you think about winter, you know, going through a subway turnstile and having mittens with, you know, sure. payment tech in them. I'm like, Oh, sure. Brilliant. So totally. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a short hop from, you know, here we're talking about disparate objects where it's a glove a necklace, a ring, what have you pretty short hop as these things get more and more ambient. And again, we're talking about outer outer edges of things, but not terribly far away. But when you start thinking about conductive thread or when you start thinking about kind of how to weave these things into more and more kind of interesting objects, it's, a, it's, it's not far off. Very exactly. interesting reality coming. Google has Project Jacquard. They're working with Levi's For on sure. smart mm-hmm. threads. Um, totally. I actually at South by Southwest saw a backpack that was made by a company that does costumes for Rihanna and Lady Gaga Mm. that when you're listening to music, the back of the backpack has like this little light show happening into Ah. the beat of the music, which I was like, that's kind of fun. Everybody behind you loves you when you (laughs) bring it to the movie theater. No, right. Exactly. Exactly. It was very pretty. So I I enjoyed it, but I was like, man, that's going to cost a lot. And I, I can't really see a lot of utility there. So yeah. I, I'm yeah. too functional. Well, it's interesting when you kind of, you start thinking about, you know, payments kind of being interwoven. thinking about your glove a moment ago. I don't know if you've seen, you've probably seen the top shop, the Barclays top shop um, kind of trinkets, the little payment uh, objects that they've done, the little jewelry that's all payment, payment based. It's only for top shop in the UK, but okay. um, super, super interesting kind of, it, they're just really fun form factors. I mean, obviously they're, they're kind of geared towards the top shop shopper. So it's a youth market kind of thing, but just really interesting, vaguely kind of J-pop kind of form factors and things like that. But there's a Barclays card integrated within. So it's a, it's a payment device um, as well. So again, you're starting to see, you know, this kind of interesting intersection between kind of like payment logic and all these different kinds of logics being you know, pushed into all different kinds of, you know, bracelets wearable, just interesting statement pieces that don't explicitly look like, you know, computer on my wrist or things like that. So I mean, obviously the Disney magic band and all of that kind of stuff is, has gone over that ground. Well, you know, it's well traveled ground for them too. So. Well, and I feel like we've gotten so used to before we've gotten so used to bands with like the jawbone or fitness mm-hmm. trackers. And then prior to that, mm-hmm. we even had, gosh, I'm trying to remember when that started, but all the live strong bracelets, those, those oh, like chunky sure. plastic yeah. bracelets that came in. A totally the big colors. fat yellow bracelet, the chunk. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I feel like we've been training ourselves to add, to becoming used to this kind of clunky plastic ugliness on our arms. <laughs> totally. I think at one point, but, but what's really interesting is, you know, you look at what Tori Birch did with Fitbit, you know, so Fitbit, the classic, you know, it's a black plastic form factor. I mean, it just kind of screams, you know, technological object. You know, and so here, you know, they get together with Tori Birch and, 
you look at their site and you look at their kind of merchandising, it's the Tory Burch times Fitbit kind of thing in their and their jewelry sleeves. Their their sleeves to slide the Fitbit within to hide it. You know, and some of these are upwards of two hundred dollars. And you you kind of look at them and go, if when I first heard about them, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's you know, an interesting thing of logic and fashion. And you kind of look at it and go, oh, it's a it's basically a container to hide the Fitbit within, so people don't advertise, you know, that big chunky piece of plastic or, or kind of like tech objects. But I kind of look at that again as another read from the culture that you know, some people might want to display the fact that it's a smart object, what have you. But once the kind of the moment of this as status kind of disappears, or maybe there's other statuses that are more important to me than showing that I've got a technological object strapped to me. You know, then you see these other companies coming in. I mean, it's no, I think that's something to be very kind of conscious of when a Tory Birch as a brand kind of moves into that space. That's obviously a signal of some sort of demand. Oh, sure. And that's one of the things I'm curious about because if you think about building containers for these devices, one, mm-hmm. it limits where you can put them, it limits the style mm-hmm. of jewelry. And mm-hmm. also, because these devices change their form factor over time, I don't know how long the Tory, like if I spend $200 on a bracelet for my Fitbit, I'm really hoping that Fitbit doesn't, you know, make a form factor that's bigger than my bracelet or, you know, sure. Yeah. They're they're pretty totally. And and I think that's always going to be a a caution. And I mean, this is a very liquid market in general. I mean, fashion in general is a a pretty liquid market. So I think you're right to kind of have some kind of caution about changing forms and, you know, we're now we're kind of getting into the idea of you know tech and standards. Oh, that's you know that's never a problem. You know what I mean. Oh. <laughs> so you know what I mean. So that's I think you're very right to kind of bring that up. And um, I do remember looking on the Tory Burch set at one point. I mean they're they're very explicit about which models to you know put the Fitbit in and, and things like that. So they don't they don't necessarily hide the fact that there perhaps might be some form factors from the Fitbit line that aren't um, going to work with these with these sleeves, but. Um, but you're right. I think that's something to kind of be cognizant of. And, and who knows, maybe the bracelet is um, attractive enough to just work on its own, even if it doesn't have anything hiding within. There you go. Now I have to ask before we go, mm. what is your thought on smartwatches or watches? How do you view um, those? I think they're great. I mean, honestly, there was uh, about a year and a half ago, I was kind of the, the doubting Thomas of it. And I said, you know, we're going to, within Fjord, we were working on a wearables uh, point of view about a little bit over a year ago. And I said, well, we, we can't really, you know, talk about it unless we kind of live with it and kind of bring it in and, and kind of uh, be able to speak from experience as opposed to just secondhand heard of it. And I was pretty surprised in terms of just a, a personal relationship to the watch. I mean, there were times where I felt like this is just, just a thing that's kind of telling me what I already knew was going to happen. And I'm maybe a little bit slave to it, but there were certain situations, particularly with driving and driving directions um, which really kind of helped me. But but in general, though, when I kind of look at the watch and you see, again, the nature of the form factor of the watch is, is kind of disappearing away from that idea of tech object and getting back to more what we think of as the classic, quote-unquote, representation of a watch. So if you look at something like Tag Heuer and their connected watch um, and look at their faces and some of these luxury watches that are coming out, you know, they're, they still kind of hide their smartness a little bit. And so... I think as as a piece of jewelry and as a way to kind of convey information and status, I think it's a it's a great kind of middle of the line piece. It can be as simple as you want, just for notification, um, or it to some point can give you a little bit more of information um, as far as notifications and, and things like that um, if you need to. So I think it's it's maybe just another way of looking at uh, a piece of piece of jewelry or another object that can be assumed to be smart. 
it's, I think it's totally fine. Okay. And I would like to see all of this stuff, all of the data move into a kind of unified place, like a health kit or a jewelry kit, maybe is a way to think of it. Because I really would like to be able to like link my jewelry of the day to my phone and have all of the information that I'm trying to convey or all of the things that I've decided work with each piece of jewelry sent to it each day. So it like authenticates each day as opposed to having a device that I have to individually program or that mm. I bought for mm. a single function. Does that make sense? That does make sense. I think, and again, we, we were speaking of the, if this, then that's of the world and this kind of nature of right now, I think the closest way to get at that is through some sort of third party aggregator again, where you can kind of write a recipe or, or something like that. So you're not kind of stuck with all of these individual and I have to choreograph everything on a device-by-device device level as opposed to saying, well, maybe these things can all just kind of integrate with one particular hub or one centralized area and get all of its instructions um, that way. At that point, it's almost like a style sheet for all the devices and just let it kind of cascade from there. Got it. So I spend 10 minutes on Ift as opposed to spending every morning opening up a different app and being like, okay, these are the five notifications I want. Totally. So, because okay. I mean, it just seems to be kind of a drag if, if, you know, the whole nature and the whole kind of idea underneath all of this, you know, ostensibly is the idea of ambient intelligence. Okay, great. If I have to spend, you know, the first part of my day kind of training these things and telling it what to do and everything on a, on a case by case basis, there's not much that's ambient or intelligent about that. <laughs> so hopefully the idea is that these things can also learn a little bit and be a little bit more anticipatory once you set the basic patterns up. Awesome. Well, I eagerly await my earrings that can give me directions right, left, just by vibrating. There you go. There you go. We've actually done a couple prototypes within Fjord um, exactly like that. That's, you know, it's haptic-based navigation um, using different devices, just like earrings and things like that. Some really interesting kind of projects we've been putting together. And again, it's it's that whole notion of just very silent, very kind of just-in-time intelligence that helps people out. And uh, it's an augment to the day gets you away from glancing at screens all day and helps you kind of be more heads up and and present back into real life as opposed to kind of falling down some digital hole for a few minutes. Awesome. All right. Well, Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. Oh my God. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. We'll see you next week. 